As we heard a moment ago, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 8, and as we are turning there, it's been nearly a month since we've been in Hebrews. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at 2 Corinthians and, and a very parallel passage that I pray will help us to understand what is being argued here. Uh, Paul makes a strong argument about the importance of the themes that are uh, found in this new covenant uh, in thinking about the old covenant in correspondence or in contrast. And so we want to look at it again today as we come to this important eighth chapter, a super important chapter in all of Scripture. In fact, our author says what? This is the kephaleon, we've said this, this this is the key or chief point of the things I've been saying. Paul says, excuse me, the author of Hebrews uh, may very well be Paul, but he says, listen, as you think about this, of all the things I've been arguing along the way, this is what I'm coming to. This is the key or chief point. Well, what is it? Well, the point is that there is a mediator and a covenant that we need to consider. There is a many foreshadows throughout this letter of other mediators, of other great men that God has used, but they all pointed to the antitype in Christ. And that's the point. They are summed up in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all of them. And so we have a greater high priest that he ministers in a superior manner, in a superior sanctuary. All of that we've been looking at for quite some time. But all that is only possible because it's under this superior new covenant. And so we want to look at that again today. And rather than me go on, let's just read the text again and see what our author says about it. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. As we think about this today, we see that uh, the author here is saying that there is a covenant with fault pointing to a covenant without fault. And so that's how we have titled the sermon, A Covenant Without Fault. But we want to look at two points in thinking about this. First of all, distinguishing between two covenants. That is much of what's been said here and two weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Much that's being talked about is distinguishing between these two covenants that are being focused on. And second of all, rejoicing in God's grace. And so let's get right into it this morning by looking first at the distinguishing between two covenants. Now, as we said a moment ago, the argument of Hebrews has largely been of a superior priest, a superior priesthood, a superior sanctuary in which he administers his work, and based on a superior sacrifice, right? Superior, 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 on and on. But it points to something else, a superior mediation as part of a superior covenant, and a, a covenant based on superior promises. All this has been explicitly argued in this letter. So we've heard all of that before, but it's important to keep in mind 
Because if you don't accept the argument, which I think we all do here, we're here today because we accept the argument of the superior priesthood and ministry and covenant, then what would the hang-up be? Well, one of the things that you might argue is, where is there any word of this superior covenant? Like, why have I heard of none of this? It may remind some of you, if you've seen a video I pointed to a couple of years ago, of an evangelist in Israel talking about Isaiah, and particularly the messianic parts of Isaiah. And many of those Jews were saying, I've never heard any of those passages preached before. But I've never heard them before. I've never thought about them before. In the same way, you can imagine here, if you've never heard some of these things said. Now, Jeremiah 31 should have certainly been a popular passage. But you may not have thought about it rightly, depending on how it's been talked about. And so this author says, let's look at the fact that there was a promise of a greater covenant. Now, we may remember that he's already done this with the priesthood, hasn't he? You might argue, well, what's wrong with Levi's priesthood? And what did he say? Well, look at the text of Scripture and you'll see it was never sufficient. Genesis 14, you see Melchizedek appear. And he's greater than Abraham, meaning he's greater than Levi. But Psalm 110, verse 4, says what? You will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he is appointed, Christ is appointed, or the Messiah is appointed as a priest according to a greater or different order. Well, why a different order if Levi was sufficient? So again, by logic, he's making the argument that there must have been evidence throughout Scripture of a greater coming priesthood. Well, likewise, there is evidence of a greater coming covenant. And it's not subtle, right? It's not subtle. It's explicitly stated to us. Now, he starts with the assumption that there is a new covenant, that there was the argument and the promise of a new covenant. He begins with that. Now, when you think about that, he begins to speak about the old covenant as old. He also speaks of it as the first covenant. But he uses the term old here because it's in relationship to what we find in the new covenant and its newness. And so, again, he's making this point. But notice immediately, he starts with a logical argument which we have thought about before, but we need to come back to because he explicitly states it here. If that first covenant, the one at Sinai, there's no question which covenant we're referring to because he says he gave it to them uh, when he took them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about the Sinai covenant. He says, when you think about that, if it had been sufficient, if it had been faultless, what need would there have been for a second? Same argument as with Levi, right? If the Levitical priesthood was enough, why the need to promise that the Messiah would be of a different priestly order? Why the need for that if Levi was sufficient? Well, again, if the ministry, if the covenant given at Sinai was sufficient, if it was was perfect, if it was faultless, why the need for a promise of another covenant? It's just a logical argument, but it brings us immediately to the fact that he's saying that there is an issue with the Sinai covenant. It has a mimptos. It is with fault. It has something missing from it. It's not perfect. There is something lacking in it. Now, as we think about that, we want to be careful as we speak about this. It's nothing lacking in God. It's nothing lacking in God's plan. It's nothing lacking in His foresight, which is perfect, or His administration, which is perfect. The covenant itself was never intended to be eternal. It was never intended to be without flaw. The flaws that it had are because of the purpose for which it was intended. And so we begin there by saying, first of all, we want to recognize that the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, had fault in it. It could not do all that God intended to do 
overall. It did everything he intended to do in that covenant. But in his plan of salvation, it did not encompass or accomplish everything. Again, this doesn't surprise God because from the beginning, when he was set to make that covenant, he always intended a superseding covenant. It was always a covenant that would lead to a greater superseding covenant. And that's made clear in today's text. We want to see that. The fault wasn't discovered late. God didn't say, I think that this will be good, this will be enough. And then he's like, oh, it didn't work. No, of course not. God has perfect foresight. He sees the end from the beginning. He knew that there would be, according to his purpose, a greater coming covenant, and he speaks of it. And again, we could even go back to what he said about the priesthood. A priesthood is tied to what? Law and covenant. So in telling us in Genesis 14 that there was a greater priesthood, he was already signaling the coming eventually of a greater covenant. And so we can find evidences over and over again. That's not our purpose. Just recognize for this morning that he says this about it, that there is a fault, there is a flaw, there is something in the old covenant which cannot accomplish all that God wants to accomplish. He never intended for it to. He never intended for it to. And so we want to think about this for a moment. God designed it for a purpose. We talked about this two weeks ago with 2 Corinthians, didn't we? He designed it for a purpose. We looked at this in Romans that the purpose of the law and the covenant was to lead to Christ. And so we need to see this over and over again. But notice as he goes to the Old Testament to prove this uh, purpose, he goes to Jeremiah. He goes to the word of God given by the prophet Jeremiah. And he says there that there will be a new covenant. A new covenant. Now this is very important to us. That word uh, kainos, it, it doesn't simply mean temporally newer. It means qualitatively greater. So it's not just that this is the new thing, right? Many of you have experienced going and buying the new product, the new phone, the new computer, and you're like, I'm not sure it's much better than the old one. It's just newer, right? Did I really get my money's worth by upgrading? Sometimes you might not feel you did. That's not what's being spoken of here. This is qualitatively greater. No question that this new covenant is of a greater glory, greater nature, greater everything. It is greater. And that's what this author is telling us. Now, What does that mean by implication? That the Sinai covenant is inferior, right? It's clearly the indication here, the implication of this. It's old and it's inferior in quality. It is not as great as the new covenant. How does Paul word this in the text we looked at two weeks ago? The glory of the new covenant is so glorious that in the light of it, the old covenant looks as if it has no glory at all. It's a diminished glory when standing next to the new covenant. It's not that it didn't have glory. It is glorious. God gave it. But the new covenant is of a higher and greater glory. And so again, we see this in what he's saying. So again, he wants us to think about this. So the fault that he's talking about here in the old covenant is simply that it was never intended to be that final covenant that would accomplish all that God wanted to accomplish. He had it for a purpose and for a time That would lead to Christ, to the Messiah and his work. And so again, he makes that clear to us. Now, one of the things that we want to look at is how he describes, if you will, the Old Covenant. Because there's a few words here that he gives us about the Old Covenant. Paleu, which means something like old, surpassed, abrogated, obsolete, out of date. When he speaks about it being old, that's what he's saying. That it's abrogated. It is fallen into the background. It has been surpassed. 
it's out of date. I heard one person word it something like this, that there would be a poster that points to an event, and you'd see the poster and say, oh, coming soon there's an event, but after the event has passed, there's no longer the same need of the poster pointing its way. Doesn't mean that the old covenant, the law doesn't tell us things or have a usefulness to us now, but it does mean that its main purpose in pointing to Christ has been accomplished. And therefore, in that way, it is out of date, it is obsolete, it is uh, it has fulfilled its main purpose for which it was given. And that is exactly what's said here in this text, that it is of an old nature, that it has passed away, that, uh, that it is not the Word of God has passed away, not the law and what it tells us about God has passed away, but the purpose of that covenant has been fulfilled. So when you look at this, it says that there is a new covenant that makes the first one obsolete obsolete. That's the word we're talking about here. It is made obsolete. So again, after the coming of the new covenant and the Messiah, which all of that pointed to, then the old covenant stands in a new relationship to the people of God. It tells us a lot. It instructs us in righteousness. It tells us much about God and His purposes, but it doesn't point forward to someone who's coming any longer. He's already come. And so there's much that we need to recognize about the old covenant, but he's saying in this sense, in this preparatory sense and this sense of how God was working through it it has been made obsolete or abrogated and so again we want to recognize this but it's not the only thing he says about it when you look at that he goes uh, as I read this text and he says something further he says the first has been made obsolete that's where we looked at now what is becoming obsolete same word again and growing old growing old so even as you're looking at it, it's growing old. Its, its purpose, its usefulness in that one sense of pointing to Christ uh, is not what it once was, right? It's growing old. It's, uh, becoming, uh, it's becoming fragile, if you want to think of it that way, in its main purpose. Again, not in showing us the glory of God, God's will, and those sorts of things, but in terms of its main function of preparation for the coming Messiah, then it's grown old. It's growing old before your very eyes, and soon he says, will vanish away, vanish away, aphonismos. Now, is that a reference to the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? We're not sure all that God has intended here, but he means that even in the current age, soon it will become clear that the old covenant had its time and place in pointing to the new and that the new has superseded it and that you can't go to the temple and offer sacrifices. I do think that's what it means, but regardless, any way you want to look at it, he's making the point that this process is being made clear to us. It's being revealed to us, to the people that he's writing this to. Look for yourselves, he says, and see if it's not the case. That the purpose of the old covenant was important and it was glorious and God used it for mighty purposes, but the main purpose was to point to Christ, to point to the new covenant, to point to your need of salvation, to point to what only Christ could accomplish. And so it had a great purpose, but only uh, temporally in the purpose, if you will, of salvation according to God's righteous plan. So that brings us to our second point, rejoicing in God's grace. Because one of the things that Jeremiah was speaking of, God uh, speaking and Jeremiah recording, and also that this author wants us to think about, is how glorious what God had promised and planned for us is. These promises that we have, this greater covenant which is attended upon greater promises than the promises of old. What were the Old Testament promises? What were the Sinai promises? Well, 
if you obey my word, if you keep my uh, covenant, then you shall be unto me a special people. If you do these things that are in the covenant, then I will give you a land and take care of you in that land and you will thrive. And all of these things. That was never intended to supersede the new covenant, right? That was until that time as this nation through whom God was going to bring the Messiah, they would be a people blessed in all regards. But notice here uh, one of the things that he wants us to see in this promise given to Jeremiah is important important for us to look at because he says as much as there are blessings of the old covenant and blessings of the new covenant promises in the old covenant promises in the new covenant he wants us to recognize there is a great difference between these two covenants even God speaking in Jeremiah 31 says this behold the days are coming saith the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah that's what we've been saying but listen to what he says next not according this is new King James language not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. We heard earlier, unlike, right? Most translations have it like that. I think it gets more to the heart of what's being said here. Uh, Instead of not according to, not like. This new covenant, which is different fundamentally than the old covenant in, in this great regard that's being spoken about here. It's not like. It's like in a number of ways. Hebrews is largely about that thing, isn't it? How the old covenant is like the new covenant in many ways. Because the old covenant pointed by type and shadow to this new covenant. But there is a great thing about this new covenant that is unlike the old. Well, what is it? Well, he tells you in the text. Look at what it says. There is a distinct difference given in what is here. Both, by the way, are graciously offered. What do we mean by that? Did God owe it to Israel to give them an agreement with him? No. He chose Israel for that purpose. He didn't owe Israel. If God had not worked through Israel, could Israel have said, God, you owe us this? Of course not. His choosing of Abraham was gracious. His choosing of Israel, gracious. His working through them, gracious. All that meaning they had no legal case to argue that God owed them anything. So it is a graciously given covenant. But there is a difference in the grace of the covenant. And we need to see this because it's important as to what he says here about the glories of the new covenant. Because he's speaking here about this covenant and fundamental difference. Look at it again. He says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Now, again, the reference is obvious. Sinai, God by his mighty arm delivered them from bondage in Egypt. He did that graciously and according to his promise. But look what he says about the nation of Israel. Because they did not continue in my covenant. Well, what's being referenced there? It says here, finding fault in them. Finding fault in them. Why? Because they did not continue in my covenant. One of the distinct things that we want to say about the Sinai covenant is that God offered it and said, if you fulfill this, if you do this, then you shall be to me a special people, a special nation, a special kingdom unto me. If you do this. Now that's given to us in Exodus. And the people say, all that you have said to us, we will obey. We will do. We will do. They gladly uh, agreed to this. They gladly said, yes, yes, we want you to know. Right? God could have put the obligations on them. No question about that. Without their agreeing to it. But they even said, yes, these things that you've said to us, we will do. We will gladly do if, if you will bless us in this way. And yet what is the story of the old covenant? 
of people who constantly err, constantly turn aside, constantly uh, break the covenant, constantly do so, and don't find any blame in themselves for doing it. How I've loved you, saith the Lord. How have you loved us? How have you loved us? Even after God has time and again overlooked things, dealt with them graciously, they cannot see it. They find no fault in themselves. And so again, he says, they did not continue in my covenant. They did not obey the very things that they agreed to obey. The very things that I charged them to obey. They did not continue in them. Well, all those promises that were given to this national body of Israel were contingent on those, were they not? There is a promise before Sinai, and we're going to deal with that as we go through this further. But we want to look at this one thing that's being dealt with in Jeremiah 31. As a nation, you agreed that your blessings, not even that you agreed, but I told you, God says, that your blessings were tied as a nation to your obedience to keeping this covenant. And you broke it time and again. You broke it time and again. Why a Babylonian exile? Well, it's exactly what's being spoken about here, isn't it? He says this, The day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. At Sinai, I gave them this. And he says, Because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them. That's what Jeremiah is speaking of, certainly. How can we understand God allowing the nation of Israel to be conquered by the Assyrians? How can we understand Judah being conquered by the Babylonians? Well, look at what the promises were. Look at what the promises were that were tied to obedience, and look at what the curses were tied to disobedience. And none of this, by the way, takes God by surprise either. God tells them, when you go into the land, Moses says, when you go into the land, and eventually are disobedient and carried off into exile, told from the very beginning it's going to happen. And in those promises is the promise that one day God will bring you back and he will do what you're unable to do. The very thing Moses has commanded that they need to be able to do, that they cannot do, which is circumcise their own heart. Oftentimes we talk about Romans and Paul's use of that phrase and we're like, oh, that's Paul. No, it's Moses. It's there, the need to have circumcised hearts that you cannot do for yourself and is the problem over and over again. God is even then in the books of Moses saying there is a day where God will circumcise your hearts. The thing that you cannot do. All that is tied to this promise of a new covenant. And you see it here in Jeremiah. Again, think about what we read two weeks ago in 2 Corinthians and tie them together. He says, This covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, Paul's making this argument in 2 Corinthians, isn't he? That these people who are saying, maybe we need a letter of recommendation or commendation from you, and Paul says, you are our letter. You, you Corinthians, are my letter. They're the evidence of how God is working through me. Why do you need a letter from someone else when you've been in this community seeing the work that God is doing through me? And then he says, written not on tablets of stone, Paul does a very subtle and clever shift here from speaking about letters of commendation and people to the Old and New Covenant. Not written on tablets of stone, external to you, but written on flesh heart. Written on the heart. That is what God is at work doing in you. It's evident. Your conversion, your, your justification was through the ministry that God has called me here to do. 
Right? Your sanctification is an evidence of what God is doing through His Holy Spirit. So again, you are the letter and you are an evidence of what God is doing inwardly, not on tablets of stone, external, but through the workings of the Spirit in the heart. That's the huge difference that Paul is getting at there. And he even goes to say it's an eternal and everlasting glory that's at work now. But the Old Covenant had a little bit different glory to it, didn't it? It had glory. It's from God. It's given by God. He says this in here, that I gave them on the day that I took them out of Egypt. God gave that covenant. It's a glorious covenant. But notice what it said. Moses had the shine of glory on his face, but he covered his face. Why? Because it was fading away. Fading away. That's not God's glory fading away. We tried to emphasize this two weeks ago. It's the old covenant glory fading away. For it's temporal. It is a covenant which will fade away. It has a purpose and a time, but that will be fulfilled and it will fade away. Well, how does this author put it? Well, look at verse 13. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to fade away. Ready to fade away. Just like that glory on Moses' face, just like that old covenant glory, it's fading away. The old covenant is fading away, but it's not, we're not left without any covenantal agreement with God, any covenantal relationship with God. There's a better covenant. That's the argument of this letter, a greater covenant. We stand in a covenant that has an eternal and everlasting glory. And there are many reasons for it, but some of them are given to us here. Right? First of all, the glory of this covenant is that we don't have a righteous standing before God based on what we do. Right? We have a righteous standing before God based on what Christ has done what Christ alone could do, what Christ did on behalf of His people. That's the righteousness in which we stand. And notice all the promises that are tied to the New Covenant, promises that we talked about even today in our catechism of justification and sanctification and ultimate glorification are not tied to our own righteousness. The Reformers, you say, we have a righteousness that is extranos, external to us. It's an external righteousness. It's not our inherent righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. And we have a standing in Him. And because of that, those promises are secure. We can't mess up and and have forgotten, oh, you know what? I was supposed to do this and because I didn't, now this covenant has been broken and I'm outside of it. No, it was never based on my obedience. Now, are we called to obedience? Of course. Are we called to live out the will of God, being sanctified by the Spirit? Of course. Are being transformed by the Spirit of God? Yes, that's another glory of what this is speaking of. Israel was called to a law that's external. This is arguing that. 2 Corinthians is arguing this. right? It's an external law which showed the righteous standing of God, both morally and positively, in the laws that God gave. They could not live up to it as fallen, sinful men. But what's said here is there's a glory in the changed relationship, because made right with God and standing in the righteousness of Christ, we are being transformed. Not by merely an outward law which looks upon us and points its finger showing our guilt. At best, we just look upon that law and say, this is what God desires of us, but we have no ability to reach it. Now in this right standing before God, this right standing in Christ, we are being transformed inside our hearts. That's what Paul says, not written on tablets of stone, but on flesh heart, this law is. Sorry about that. And also here, what does it say? 
the Lord says this will be a different kind of covenant. In what way? No longer shall it be written on tablets of stone external, but on flesh heart internal, signaling the work of the Holy Spirit of God within us. And we could go through a whole sermon just on that angle of this text in terms of justification, sanctification, ultimately glorification, but transforming us. That's what the Holy Spirit is at work to do. We said last Sunday during, during our time at the Lord's table that, that the Holy Spirit, God, is applying every spiritual blessing secured by Christ in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of Christ. Again, we're not merely looking upon an external standard of what God uh, tells us to do both morally and positively, but also in addition to that, what we find is God is actually changing us transforming us, circumcised our hearts at our justification and is transforming us in the image of Christ. That's an image of perfect righteousness. Now will we get there in this lifetime? Our justification, yes. Right, the second we're transformed. But what about that sanctification process? Are we ever going to be sinless in this world? No. Not until our our glorification and we're absent from the presence of sin in general and, and totally transformed will never be perfect in this world, but, but look at what it's even said here about this covenant. Because there might be a question, well, can you sin your way out of this covenant? Can you sin your way out of this covenant? By the way, this is super important to understanding the earlier chapters of Hebrews and the warnings there. Because this author is making the point this is a fundamentally different covenant in that Israel broke the covenant. But you can't break the covenant in that same sense. And here's why. Because God is a merciful God who's transformed you internally, justifying you. And then look at this. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Jeremiah promised this. You're going to have unrighteousness. You're in, and this is what uh, Luther used to say, right? Simultaneously sinner and made righteous. And we all live this out. We understand this. But he says this. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Man, that's grace. That's what's being spoken of here. That is the grace of God toward His people. I uh, don't know how many times I've sinned today, right? may not even realize every time that I have a thought I shouldn't have or uh, do something I shouldn't do. But God has given a promise, right? This covenant isn't based on your righteousness to begin with. This covenant is, is based on the righteousness of Christ who fulfilled the law and died, died and rose again and is enthroned now in glory at the right hand of the Father. And so we have this gracious covenant, this gracious covenant given to us where God promises this. I'll be merciful to their, uh, to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. My friends, those are words of hope. Because if that isn't true, then none of us have any hope at all, right? If, if it's based on my sinfulness that I rise or fall or my righteousness that I rise or fall, then I fall short today. This could be the greatest day I've ever lived in terms of righteousness and I fall short because my righteousness is not perfect. But the reason that there is a glory to this new covenant and the reason it is eschatological and doesn't have to be replaced by anything It's because its glory is made evident in this way. God justifies sinners. He transforms them. He sanctifies them and ultimately glorifies them, not based on what we have done, 
but based on what Christ Jesus has done for us. And so, my friends, as we think about the differences in these covenants, keep those things in mind. And keep in mind what this author wants us to recognize. The old covenant was great and glorious. But we have a hope and a a glorious standing in Christ Jesus that is so much more because of what Christ did for us.